So I think everybody probably heard the Goldilocks and the Three Bears story growing up. So I won't repeat the whole tale, but the gist of it, or the basic point that I want to draw out in the story, is the part where Goldilocks goes and tries the porridge. And she tries you know, Papa Bear's porridge, and it's too hot. Uh, she tries the other porridge, it's too cold, and then she finds one that's just right. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, I'm going to be talking about meditation and how to bring the Goldilocks principle into meditation. And the Goldilocks principle is just the right amount. You know, what's that just right amount that's needed? And the Goldilocks principle, it's uh, interesting. It's applied to multiple domains because in multiple domains, this is an issue. It's, you find it in economy, you find it in developmental psych. Um, in astrobiology, there, there's a notion of the Goldilocks zone, and this is how I first heard about it, actually. This um, idea that there is a sort of habitable zone around a star, and in that zone, uh, that's where the possibility of life emerging um, uh, could happen, because it's not too hot, not too cold, just the right kind of conditions, at least in terms of the relationship to the sun. Um, there's more to that. That's part of a larger thing called the rare earth hypothesis. There's more factors, but the distance from the sun is really important in thinking about could life emerge? Are the conditions present for it to emerge? The Goldilocks zone. So what is the Goldilocks zone if we apply it to meditation? If we think about meditation practice, what we're doing here, um, what is the Goldilocks zone? And I want to kind of offer one response to that, and I'm going to kind of try to illustrate it as best I can here. Um, this is the Goldilocks zone as I understand it. It's kind of like a spectrum. On one side, we have the too cold, and then the other side is too hot. And of course, right in the middle is the Goldilocks zone, where it's just right. And what I want to propose is that this Goldilocks zone exists somewhere between the spectrums, the spectrum of concentration on the one side and investigation on the other. So concentration and investigation. Thinking about this as a spectrum. I think I'm pretty sure spelling investigation wrong. That was close. This is sort of a spectrum of experience or spectrum of practice. And so we have the Goldilocks zone right in the center. And you know, part of what happens if you look at this illustration is that on the one side, with concentration, if you go too far, you become basically absorbed in your experience, absorbed to the point where you can't actually investigate. Because if you're really one with your experience, like in jhana practice, you become absorbed in a jhana, you're not aware of the jhana anymore as an object, you're just suffused inside of it. It's all that there is. Um, so if you go too far on the spectrum, you can't actually investigate. Um, you, you become one with the object. So this is sort of the absorbed side of things. 
This is where practices like jhana go. <coughs> and on the other side of investigation, if you go too far on that side, which has been my main practice, then you end up in the sort of dry insight territory, so-called. And it's very easy to become totally and utterly scattered, what I would propose. So what does it look like to come into the Goldilocks zone between concentration and investigation? I want to mention a few other words that could be used here. So with concentration, we could also talk about stopping or accessing. And with investigation, we could talk about seeing or breaking things down or deconstructing experience. So there's stopping and seeing, accessing and then breaking down, concentrating and investigating. These are all different ways of talking about the general vibe of what's being done on the spectrum. Uh, I want to introduce something called the telescope analogy, which is a nice way of describing the purpose of these different practices and their relationship to each other. So in the telescope analogy, which could also be a microscope, they're used interchangeably. The idea is that concentration is like polishing the lens of the telescope or microscope the equivalent of polishing the lens of attention. Jack Kornfield writes that, like a powerful telescope, the concentrated mind can open us to vast mystical states, including realms of light, visions, rapture, and illumination. Like polishing a lens on a microscope, concentration can allow us to see more deeply into the body and mind. So here Jack's describing what happens when concentration is strong. Like a powerful telescope can open us to all these uh, incredible states of consciousness. Some very profound feeling and amazing And they allow us to see more deeply into the body and mind. And this is part of the reason in the Buddhist tradition, concentration and investigation are always taught side by side. Because the idea is if, you, if you're not focused enough to be aware of what's happening, there's no way to understand what it is or to see it clearly. If the telescope is not stabilized and the lens is not clear and it's not pointed in the right direction, you know, good luck. Good luck in making any interesting observations. Uh, and so too, with contemplative practice, with mindfulness practice, we're pointing a well-trained attention, trying to develop and then point this well-trained attention toward our experience to see what's there. So if concentration is like polishing the lens, then investigation is like using 
the telescope, using the microscope, actually observing things, seeing what's there on the other end of the lens. Chagyam Trungpa writes about investigation where he talks about it as mindfulness. This way, he says, mindfulness is like a microscope. It's neither an offensive nor a defensive weapon in relation to the germs we observe through it. It's neither defensive or offensive. The function of the microscope is to just clearly present what is there. So in the case of the telescope, right, we're looking out at celestial objects. In the case of the microscope, we're looking at the very, very small objects, cells, um, things like that, celestial bodies, planets, stars. And you could say with a well-trained attention, what we're looking at are sense objects, sensory experience. We're looking at the objects that are arising in our own subjective experience. And in all cases, it seems that the naked eye kind of sucks. In all of these cases, the naked eye, that is the eye that we have without any training, without any supports, any technologies to augment it, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it misses a whole lot. It misses a tremendous amount. It misses most of the universe, right? I mean, clearly, most of the universe is not happening in the visible light spectrum and is not happening near us in the room we're in. <laughs> um, and yet, isn't it funny how we walk around somehow thinking that we know so much more uh, than, than it's likely that we could even perceive? And so if the naked eye sucks, yeah, that's what we're here. We're, we're here training this other type of scope, this mind scope, this inner scope, this subjective reality scope to to be able to zoom in and zoom out, to clearly see what's arising in the field of experience. So I have two questions. One is, how do we recognize this Goldilocks zone um, when we get into it? How do we actually know that we're just practicing just right? Um, and then how do we um, how do we get there more consistently, more reliably? Like how do we how do we practice well more of the time? And the challenge is that this Goldilocks zone isn't actually static. It isn't actually stable. I mean, you could say the same thing about planets and the habitable zone of the Goldilocks zone. It seems stable to us, but that's because we're you know, we're existing at this time scale. And we look out and we're like, oh, that's stable. From a universal time scale, even the Goldilocks zone of our planet is not stable. It's not static. It's not going to always be the same. Um, but when you zoom back down to the personal psychological level and meditation experience, um, the Goldilocks zone can change within a sitting. Um, it can change multiple times within a retreat. It can change many, many times. Uh, in, in one single uh, retreat. So that's part of the frustrating 
thing about this is there is a sweet spot. There is a place where we drop in and really uh, are seeing clearly what's happening in that moment. But then we drop, you know, we drop out or something changes and we keep using the old strategy to try to practice when the entire environment, the conditions have changed. And the new strategy ends up just being basically a battle against what's happening. You know, we think we want to get back to that sweet spot because we've already made it into a concept, into an idea of like, oh, that's what it's like to practice well. And so it's very common as practitioners, we get attached to those moments when we're in the sweet spot and often try to replicate it. Um, but it's usually not replicatable um, in the same way. So in my experience, the Goldilocks zone kind of, you know, it almost goes through phases, just like our practice goes through phases. I mean, they're one and the same. And part of the reason for this, um, part of the reason I want to offer is that as practice matures and develops, as it cycles, it recurses through this sort of territory of, as we sort of investigate our experience and, and begin going deeper with it, we're doing two things. One is we're increasing the subtlety of our attention. We're working first with really gross objects, things that are obvious. Gross not as in like yucky, but gross as in is like right there in front of you, you can see it. We're working with things like the body initially, um, the breath often, and those are pretty easy to tune into even if we can't stay with them, even if our concentration isn't stable. But then as the practice matures, um, we can start to become more aware of other kinds of experiences um, that are also there in the field, but which we hadn't maybe noticed before. These, these really subtle sensations, um, the reason they're so subtle is because we think they are us. Um, in fact, the most subtle is the thing we can't see, right? You can't even say it's subtle because it's invisible. Um, but perhaps we start to catch glimpses of some of those objects, certain thoughts, certain feelings, certain patterns of experience. Um, in the practice, we start to notice, oh, there's a subtle... Okay, I'm, I'm going to share a story. This was something that happened while I was working with Kenneth. Uh, 2005 or six. I reached out to Kenneth and I was sharing my practice with him. And he gave me some suggestions over email and I started you know, put them into practice. It was with the noting technique. And one day I was sitting practicing and I heard a sound outside and I noticed that it was the sound of a car and then recognized that there was the sound and then there was this visual image of a car driving by in my mind and that then there was the idea, there's a car outside. <laughs> you know, I had, to, had to have those two components come together, kind of get glued together and sort of then I could make the leap, oh, there's a car outside. Because I hear the sound and there's the visual image in my mind. And before that time, before I recognized that those two things were happening, I didn't realize how quickly things like sounds and visual imagery, external sounds and internal imagery would arise together. It's like the moment there's a sound, my, the mind was already 
kind of mapping it or you know kind of trying to get a sense of what it is visually and so for me this in this experience was, a, was an experience of waking up to another level of subtlety of something I hadn't seen before and by waking up to that subtlety of experience um, I was then seeing things differently now I couldn't not see that sound and visual imagery was coming together to form these I, these complex I, perceptions um, and then I started to question those perceptions you know, and the ideas that I had because I realized they were made up of other stuff. Well, Kenneth was talking about you know, how would you argue with the Buddha if he came and challenged your awakening, um, saying there's a car outside would not be, <laughs> would not suffice. So one of the reasons that this isn't static or isn't stable is that our perception keeps going to more subtle experience uh, as we train it. And the other reason is because our attention also grows in scope as we practice. So initially the scope of attention might be very small. Like for instance, you might be paying attention to the breath at the nostrils and there's a sense in which Attention is really zoomed in on the small point of attention right here in the nostrils. So the scope of attention is quite small. The aperture of attention is really small in this case. And as we get better at concentrating, what I've noticed happens is it's almost like the mind goes, okay, got that, boring, um, time to like grow, time to expand, time to include more in this, in this, con in this concentration. Um, to, to make the object bigger, or for it to fill up more of the space. Um, and so part of what's happening uh, is that you know, concentration starts as a very small point, and then, it, and then our attention grows, and it includes more, and eventually it encompasses the entire felt sense of our subjective experience, spatially. It encompasses everything. Eventually encompasses even the idea of space, um, and then space breaks down. Um, so as we practice, the subtlety increases, the scope is increasing, and so uh, it sends us on this ride, basically, where it's a constant feeling of, okay, I got it, and then I lost it, and now I got it again, and now I lost it again, and I got it again, and I lost it again, and that's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> it's just like, you got it, and you lost it, you got it, and you lost it. Um, and so the question is, how do we practice um, in the phase, especially in the phases where it feels like uh, we're in over our heads? Um, I think that's especially important. I want to give some examples of, of what, you know, what my experience has been of what the Goldilocks zone feels like in some of these phases of practice, just as an example of how different it can be. So one common phase of practice uh, I call the breakthrough phase. It's called the arising and passing away phase and um, the Buddhist maps of insight. And then this is a phase where everything is kind of coming together. And the Goldilocks zone feels very, and if you've, had, you know, you've been through this phase, you know, it's very effortless. Um, there's a quality in which um, there's an energetic quality to our attention. There's a lot of 
intense energy that often arises in even in the Goldilocks zone. Um, there's a way in which attention feels laser-like. It feels extremely powerful. Like everywhere we turn attention, it's penetrating the experience. Um, there also can be in this phase a, a rapid a perception of impermanence that's extremely rapid, that we're seeing the change of experience happen quickly, and it's happening by itself in the Goldilocks. It's all happening by itself. And for me, I've also noticed in this phase a quality of resting back in this sort of sense of uh, spacious witnessing of being able to kind of notice everything that's arising and just kind of rest almost apart from it in a way. And there's a certain kind of peace and tranquility in that that tr transcendental feeling of witnessing. In the disillusionment phase, uh, it's quite different. Uh, I noticed uh, actually uh, moving through this today, uh, and you know, there were moments where when I really could just allow things to be, or I'll say in the moments where there was a, when there was an allowing of things to be, um, really felt a kind of rawness and tenderness, um, kind of op open quality being really open, not so focused and laser-like, but kind of broad and open, uh, a quality of acceptance of just, and, and, and I, I want to use a term that can be loaded for some people, but this is the term I, I like, is a kind of surrender, kind of just, okay, this is it, and I, I'm, I'm giving up, I'm trying to like get out of here, I'm just going to be, I'm accepting that this is happening. Um, there's a, a, a certain a certain kind of trust that goes with that. But it's a weird one because it's like we're trusting in something that doesn't feel good and we're trusting in a way where we don't actually know what's going to happen next. Actually, we're trusting in not knowing. That's part of what we're relaxing into in this phase. So raw, tender, open, Trusting is different than effortless, energetic, laser-like witnessing. Um, and I think the reason this is important is because, it, and, and the reason it's useful sometimes to have these maps is if they can help us understand our own phases better, then at, at least cognitively it gives us some, uh, some idea of how to work with where we are. Now, regardless of what phase you're in, I want to offer uh, here a few, several ways that you might experiment with finding the Goldilocks zone. So this is irregardless of where you are in your practice, what's arising, how, it's, how it is. The first way is just to notice what's happening right now. The go-to move. That's why it's the go-to move, <laughs> because 
if you can just notice what's happening now, um, in order to do that, there's a certain amount of concentration that has to be present. We have to be able to access what's actually occurring right now to stop and to access what's there and to see it and to investigate it, to notice it, to see what it's like. And if you can continuously notice what's happening, then that concentration and investigation power builds. And it can also, and also often balances, balances itself out. Because we notice, oh, anxiety, frustration, uh, overwhelm. You know, we, we notice ways in which we're getting out of whack. And just the noticing of it kind of allows it to, to relax. Or we might notice, oh, sleepiness, dullness, uh, tiredness. Just the noticing of that can, in some cases, shift us toward the energetic side of things. So this is part of the reason in the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness was always taught as something that doesn't have a counterbalancing force. Um, often, many of the qualities of heart and mind taught in the Buddhist tradition have opposite forces that you have to kind of keep in balance but mindfulness is almost like the governor it's the thing that lets you find the balance uh, in that model so mindfulness is the practice of noticing what's happening right now uh, Another, another way to find the Goldilocks zone is to play around with zooming in and zooming out. Um, Kenneth mentioned that today. Um, there's an experiment I like here where you can first start by bringing your attention to the palm of your right hand and the sensations in the palm. And really start by zooming in and getting a tight as possible focus on the sensations. So maybe just try that for a moment. If you want to get ultra zoomed in, you could zoom into the sensations at the tip of the index finger. Notice what it's like to zoom further. Notice what you experience in your body as you zoom in. Is there tightness or pressure or strain of any kind? Notice how it affects your emotional body, your energetic body. Is there an increase in energy or a decrease? Or does it stay the same? Notice what happens to everything that's not the sensations in the tip of the index finger when you zoom in. Okay. And now uh, I'd like to invite you to zoom out gradually from the tip of the finger, zooming your attention out like the aperture of a camera, opening in all directions. And see if you can get as zoomed out as possible while still being aware that there are sensations in your hand.
still being aware of them, but not exclusively. And what is this zoomed out perspective like? How do you feel it in your body? How does it affect you emotionally, your state of mind? Has it changed the sensations in the palm of your hand that you were noticing earlier? How does it change your experience of the whole field of experience? Zoomed out. Okay, and now I want to invite you to let your attention begin to slowly zoom back in gradually zooming back in to the sensations in the palm. And as you gradually move in, see if you feel a moment where there's a kind of exhilaration, a sweetness, a feeling of, oh yeah, that's the right amount of zoom. That's the right aperture for this moment. See if you can find your sweet spot. And once you do, I'll let yourself be there. Drop into the sweet spot. Notice what is it like now. the sensations like in the palm of your hand? How's your body feel? How's your mind? Heart? How is your awareness of the room? So one way to find the Goldilocks zone at times is to st sort of notice where is the aperture of our attention? And is there a place that we can tune it to that's uh, a little bit more appropriate for the moment? Um, I remember being on retreat and experiencing uh, a tremendous amount of dullness, um, what in the tradition they call sinking mind. And some of you know it well. Um, and part of the reason I suspect I was in the sinking mind, aside from just being a natural phase of practice, was also that I had gotten really in, into zooming out, really into like holding the whole of my experience in contrast to an earlier period of practice where I was really zoomed in kind of exploring like, oh, wow, there's this zoom thing. I can zoom out now. And then all of a sudden I was like falling asleep all the time. Uh, and so it took me a while, but I, I, I kind of realized, oh, I need to find a more appropriate way to pay attention where I'm not just going to be sleeping the entire retreat, nor do I need to be uh, striving and pushing and, you know, 
um, you know, uh, basically uh, <laughs> treating meditation practice as a, as a kind of self-flagellation. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm going to beat myself to enlightenment. <laughs> um, and so it was really helpful for me to find that appropriate aperture um, and to kind of intentionally direct my attention to that new zoomed-in place. So you might play with this and just see um, if you notice you're really uptight, um, contracted. Sometimes it's nice to zoom out. You know, it can be relaxing. It can be, you know, we actually might need to back off. Other times we might be sleepy or dull, and it can be useful to zoom in. Um, but not always, because sometimes the aperture of attention is growing, the scope of our attention is growing, and actually what we need to do is zoom out a little bit more. Um, and we may not, it may not feel immediately good. It might just feel like, oh yeah, now I'm at least not fighting against my experience. I'm being, I'm being with this wide open, confusing, complex, annoying experience. <laughs> but at least I'm here with it now, <laughs> before I was trying to just get back to this better state. Another way to um, find the Goldilocks zone is to work with effort, um, relaxing and intensifying effort. So there's the scope of attention, zooming in and zooming out. There's noticing whatever's happening. And then there's the sort of subtle dance of playing with our intention, our effort. How much uh, energy, how much effort, how much intention do we put into the practice versus how much do we relax, sit back, open to, um, and almost in a way receive experience. This is, um, I mean, one of the biggest questions that come up, comes up in meditation. Like, how do I find that, as I said, in the Buddhist tradition, the right effort? You know, where is that place? And again, it's, um, it's not so easy to find because it's constantly changing. And the moment we find it, almost guaranteed to change. Um, so relaxing and intensifying effort. One of my friends, uh, Walker, Walker Trailer, yeah, my college buddies, he went off to Malaysia to do like a three-month retreat, a Mahasi retreat. And he did the whole thing, and he strove to try to experience stream entry, and his goal was to get enlightened on that retreat. And it didn't work for him. Uh, it did not work for him. He came back an utter mess. And after that, he started working with some other teachers and started working with some other methods that were much more relaxed, much more open, much more uh, kind of gentle. And he, he was on retreat with uh, another teacher named Christopher Titmus, uh, and I heard that I heard the uh, recording of this. Uh, he was in a Q and A, and he said, "Hey, I've been you know, studying these two different methods. You got the Mahasi method on the one hand with the noting and the three characteristics, and then there's this more open awareness, choiceless awareness practice that I've also been learning and that you've been teaching here on this retreat. It's like, what's the deal? How do I square, you know, these two different things?" And Christopher asked him how he would describe. Walker would describe the difference between the two practices, between the two styles of practice. 
And he said, well, the, the noting method for me feels a lot more like, um, like a machine gun. You know, it's like really powerful, intense, rapid, forceful. Um, and that was, that was his experience. And, and he said, and the, and the choiceless awareness, it feels like the feeling the subtle wind coming off of a butterfly's wings as it flaps right next to you. It's like the, the amount of effort needed is this very subtle, open, opening, relaxing. There's effort, but it's the most gentle, subtle effort you could imagine. And so one thing that's interesting is depending on what technique we're practicing or how we understand the technique, it can also change our relationship to effort um, and, and how we find ourselves in the Goldilocks zone which is why we're not here saying this is the technique and everyone has to do this technique. Because, you know, if you're like Walker um, and that this technique doesn't work for you because it's not what you need right now, then, you know, the reality is um, that you just get pushed further to the extreme of one side or the other instead of coming back into the Goldilocks zone. So that's another way to work with things uh, is to switch up the technique or switch up the instruction. Um, that can be another way to kind of move things. It's also a, a fairly challenging way, uh, at least initially, you know, because there can be confusion and doubt, like what should I be doing? I'll do this. Oh, this isn't very nice. Let me go back to that. You know, we, can, we have to watch for that, you know, as practitioners, you know, using switching up to avoid what's there. But that said, switching techniques uh, really has a huge impact on on this equation. Um, the last way that I want to talk about is um, what I'm thinking of as the intuitive uh, wisdom approach. So all of the other ways, um, there's a little bit more top-down cognition in those where we're kind of thinking our way into figuring out how to tweak our practice and our experience. And we've got, you know, kind of a model for that, like relax and intensify the effort. Um, and this has a cognitive component too, obviously, because we're talking about it. But it's different. The focus isn't so top-down, it's more of a bottom-up approach, where, for instance, you could just let your attention drop into your body to come out of the head. I invite you to do that now. To see what it's like to let your attention drop down toward the earth. And become distributed through your whole body. Noticing if there's any areas of tightness or tension or numbness or even no sensation. And let yourself relax around those spaces, letting them be there, but just relaxing around them. Letting your attention 
be fully distributed through the body. And now from here, you can let the body meditate you. When attention isn't fixated, centralized in the head, in our cognition, when our reference point is more distributed, then we can let this organism meditate itself. And here with the intuitive approach, what we're essentially doing is we're exploring what it's like to trust that there's something in us that knows how to do this better than, than, we, than we think we know how to. And so this is sort of looking at this process very much as a natural process, that there's a natural intelligence to this process, and it's rooted in our biologies, and it's rooted also in our relationships. And so we can work with that and play with that, you know, trying it out, seeing. I found it to be a really powerful way to find the Goldilocks zone because uh, then it, it sort of takes the pressure off of me to figure it out. Just like, okay, I'm going to be in the body and let this body meditate. You know, what is it like to just sit and be? Um, yeah, the body knows how to do this. It knows how to sit. Amazing. <laughs> We've been sitting for a long time. And we're in this really incredibly weird position where we have this such deeply intelligent bodies honed by evolution and they know how to do all these incredible things and then we have this incredible neocortex um, that's relatively you know new part of that emergence and you know and this thing is like constantly overriding that intelligence in various ways especially you know, I'd say especially in the modern context when so much emphasis and so much weight is given to conceptualization and to cognition. Um, we, you know, almost entirely lose the intelligence and the wisdom in the body you know, that's there. So this is another way to work with this, the intuitive approach and coming into the body. I've also um, practiced other means, the intuitive approach where um, you almost are inviting a part of yourself that's wiser to come to the fore. Um, I've done this through, you know, uh, practices where you're kind of imagining yourself as a bodhisattva or as a Dalai Lama or as a Buddha. You, know, you, you become that, and then you meditate as if you are that. And of course, this in the in the Tibetan tradition, this is one of the main practices, deity yoga. Uh, and one of the ways that deity yoga is practiced is you become this wise, enlightened figure. You actually replace your body and mind and speech with the body and mind and speech of this uh, imagined, awake figure. And then you meditate as this enlightened being. So it's the ultimate fake it until you make it approach. 
except it's not really faking it. Uh, my experience is that there, there are these wise parts of us that um, can be invited to be present and that can be present and that can surprise us you know, and can teach, in a way, teach us how to, how to practice. Um, and it's not, it's not something that's other than us, it's part of us. You know, that this wisdom, again, is inherent in, in us. Um, and I don't know how or why that's true, um, but I've just seen it so many times in my own practice, I've seen it so many times with other people, that I just, you know, I just trust that, that that's the case. Um, there's one uh, practice that I um, explored on retreat called the Big Mind Process. Uh, it's taught by a woman named Diane Musho Hamilton, Zen teacher and facilitator. And the Big Mind process is based on a method that was developed in the 70s called voice dialogue. And it's a psychotherapeutic method that sort of uh, invites the client to get in touch with and speak as these different parts of the self, like to speak as the controller or as the wounded child or as the, you know, the critic, things like that. Um, Big Mind took that and said, oh, what would happen if you asked to speak to the voice of Big Mind? or the voice of um, wisdom, or the voice of compassion? Um, what would happen if you invited yourself to speak as these, uh, what they call transcendent voices? And what they found is that for most people that do the method, um, it's easy enough to just access those voices and to speak as them. May I speak to the voice of balance, concentration, and investigation? Yes. Here I am, focusing clearly, seeing clearly, and yet open, connecting in a genuine way. Nothing's left out. So you could, for a moment, internally see if you could speak to that voice in yourself, just internally saying, may I speak to the voice of balanced concentration and investigation. And all you have to do is ask the question and then be open, receptive, and see what comes up. Notice how your body changes, your state changes, your thoughts change if they do. So one method is just to invite this inner wisdom to be present and then just meditate as that. These intuitive approaches, um, in some ways you could think of them as the more feminine approach approaches and the top-down kind of cognitive cognitive clarity based approaches um, the effort approaches you could think of those as uh, kind of more masculine and so um, it's one way of, of, of breaking it down and what I found really interesting is when you know when 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 a practitioner has access to the full range of that it becomes very interesting um, 
because then we have different different ways, different means for finding out how to do this basic uh, practice of just being with what is. You know, it's 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 so extremely simple, um, but it's um, gosh, it's, it's so difficult at the same time, it's so challenging. So may we have all the means and methods we need in order to be right here with each other. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.